Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. In London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a Startup Grind. Hey there and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a conversation with entrepreneur, investor, and the co-founder of the software development company Gigster, Roger Dickey. Prior to founding Gigster, Roger led game studios at Zynga after joining when the company had just 30 employees after selling his first company, Curiosoft, to Zynga. Roger oversaw Mafia Wars, explosive growth to over 100 million users and $1 billion in revenue. Roger also worked as an international product team advisor for Zynga, helping the company grow their games in India, Japan, and China. Alongside his work at Zynga, Roger began advising and investing in Bay Area startups in 2010. His investments include Docker, Adpar, iCracked, OpenGov, ClassDojo, and Wanilo. Advisory roles include Formation 8, Nest, Opendoor, and the Teal Fellowship. Let's listen into Roger Dickey, interviewed at our San Francisco chapter by Startup Grind Editor-in-Chief Michael Gassiorik. Um, so before we dive into what you're doing, Geekster, could you tell us a bit about what the origins are, some of your early story? Yeah, so, uh, so first of all, awesome to be here, as I said. Um, it, given that this is a super small group, uh, I, I hope we can, you know, if, if, if it's okay with Startup, startup Grind, I, I, I hope we can keep this a little bit more on the casual side. So if you guys have questions that come up, uh, maybe ask us later or whenever the appropriate time is. I uh, want this to be, you know, valuable for you, for sure. I don't just want to kind of tell my personal story, which has maybe a little bit of relevance, but probably not too much for you guys. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so... Getting, getting into my background a little bit, uh, always been an engineer um, and, uh, you know, always, always, always coding different things, uh, always had a side project. So ever since elementary school, I would, you know, I'd be, I'd be building a game or I'd be building some app and I would put in a floppy disk, bring it into class and show my friends. So sort of, uh, I like to say I was doing, I was, I was building consumer software since third grade because <laughs> uh, it was software for my classmates, right? You know, the idea was I, w- I would bring in a little game, and if people liked it, I would, uh, you know, go home and do a little more work on it. If they didn't like it, I'd go home and build something else. Uh, I would just, you know, code uh, until my parents forced me to go to bed, basically, uh, and then kind of, you know, kind of iterate from there and learn. So was always doing little projects. So in terms of being a, being a founder, I guess you could say, it was something that was sort of always in me, was this idea of, like, you know, setting a goal, building a project, putting the team together, getting the resources, and producing some outcome. Um, so I was always really into that. Um, ended up doing a lot of different types of engineering from 3D game engines, ray tracers, digital circuit design, compilers, operating systems, you name it. Got into kind of the whole spectrum of uh, everything from like everything from digital, digital hardware engineering up to different types of software engineering. Um, and, and people had approached me to start companies. I'd never been really entrepreneurial on my own. I always just loved engineering. Uh, so I, I'd had various friends who were like, oh, this guy's like working all the time. He'd be the perfect tech co-founder. But it was just a lot of really dumb ideas I didn't want to do. Um, so ar- around about 2005 when Facebook launched, I, uh, I, I sort of developed what Peter Thiel would call a secret. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the Peter Thiel concept of secrets? So, uh, P- uh, so for those of you who aren't, uh, a Peter Thiel secret is basically something you know about the world that other people don't know that you can hopefully leverage for for, uh, for gain as a founder, right? Um, so I had a secret that since 2005, I believed Facebook would be a huge 
a huge company and a huge product. So in 2006, uh, I tried to join Facebook. Uh, my, my company, I was working in Texas as some software engineer. Um, my company sent me to a conference in, in Silicon Valley, which was a huge mistake. Never send your good employees to conferences. They will leave you <laughs> unless your company's awesome, and then you're okay. Except ours, come to our conference. <laughs> Except startup grind, come to that conference. Uh, but anyways, so they sent me to this conference, and uh, you know, of course, I ended up meeting with all my entrepreneurial friends and kind of got interested in what they were doing. Um, but the main thing I was doing was I, I stood outside of Facebook headquarters. I took the train down from San Francisco. I stood outside of Facebook HQ, which was on University Avenue, and I stopped every person on the way out. I saw Zuckerberg actually leaving, and I kind of waved. Um, this is back when they had like 100 employees, and they were, I think they were worth about $2 billion or something, two to $5 billion, something like that. Um, so I was like, I'd stop people on the way out, and actually the, the main guy that I got the most time with was the guy that wrote the programming riddles, which was cool. You might remember back in the day, if you were trying to apply for a job as a software engineer, you had to do these riddles. They were really, really hard. There were eight riddles, and I could only solve like two. Um, and you only had to solve one to submit your application. So I was like, oh, well, I'm ahead. Clearly, I'm going to like not blow it out of the water. So I talked to the guy. He's like, oh, yeah, just submit your riddles. Here's my, here's my email address. Emailed the guy, no response. Emailed again, no response. Submitted through the website. I found out later that the only people that got in were the ones that did all eight riddles, even though they tell you to do one. And I can only solve two. So I clearly did not get a job at Facebook. Um, but on the same trip, I met a friend who was starting to build Facebook apps. And, uh, and the, the application platform had just launched. And I had some early interest in it, but didn't really know where it would go. So he, uh, he showed me his app. He made, he made an app in eight, in eight hours. He was doing about $1,000 a day in revenue, 100% profit. What was um, the app? It was, uh, it was like this zoo thing. It was like basically a screen where you had a zoo, and you could add, drag these animals into it, and then your friends could look at it, and they could like feed your animals. It was really dumb. Early and the animals were just like divs. They were just, I mean, it, if you know HTML, it was just like these divs on a grid. Like you could, you could code this in like eight hours too. It was really, really simple. He wasn't like a savant level engineer. He was just an opportunist. So I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Well, if I can't work at Facebook, I might as well like make app, I might as well make, make apps on Facebook, right? So, uh, so I, I, I went home and uh, quit my job basically the day I got back and just started making Facebook apps. Um, I can talk about that. Sure. So was that Curiosoft or was that something still before that? That was Curiosoft. Tell so us that, about that. That was Curiosoft. So, so uh, me and this friend, uh, we decided to partner up. He, he moved over to Austin. And we just, we basically just uh, worked about 16, 18 hours a day, six and a half days a week, building as many apps as we could. We launched an app every three days. Uh, we, so we built about 19 apps total in about three or four months. Uh, you know, and this is where we started to come up with some of the concepts that went into Gigster. So we're rapid prototyping. So you can't launch an app every three days unless you have like a rapid prototyping framework, right? So that's the, one of the first things we did. Because we recognized that the Facebook application space would be hits driven. We recognized that we didn't know the market yet, right? So I knew that Facebook was going to be big. That was my secret. But I didn't know what would be big on the app platform. So we had to just try everything. We tried something like Microsoft Word. We tried a messaging app. We tried a bunch of dumb stuff until we started trying games. It turned out that on the Facebook app platform, the biggest companies were games and dating sites. And I had no interest in launching a dating site. So we ended up basically making games. Um, so the one, actually, the first game we tried, the first or second game was called Dope Wars. Anybody play Dope Wars? Or, or uh, also, also known as Drug Wars? Uh, basically, you, you, it's, it's, it's a virtual drug dealing simulation. You're, you're a drug dealer, and you've got to go around, and you've got to buy low and sell high. 
So where did the inspiration from that come? <laughs> no inspiration. It's funny because I had like never done any drugs. I smoked weed like twice or something. <laughs> and uh, that's like all I'd ever done. And I show up at Zynga and I have this game that's doing $3 million a year, like basically all profit, all sorts of drugs, like Mexican brown heroin. Like you can buy whatever you want, like serious shit, okay? I basically went on like the, I went on like the FBI website and they have some section of public record of all the drugs they've seized from like criminals. And I put all the drugs into my game, <laughs> every drug. Um, so there were like four basic ones, you know, the standard like weed, LSD, Coke, and like shrooms or something, I don't know. Those are like the four standard ones. But then there were these like special drugs that were like, you know, the, the next levels, right? Whatever, like Mexican brown heroin, right? Um, I don't even know what they all were. So we had like 30 or 40 of those on top of the basic ones. Um, and you basically, you had some capacity to get a backpack or you had a van or you had like a private jet or you had like a container ship and your, 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 your container could store a certain amount of drugs and it was all measured in bags. So you can store like, you start off with 10 bags and then your truck can hold like 200 bags, et cetera, and then it goes up. So you basically buy like, if you find like a little uh, supply demand difference, like weed over here is like five bucks a bag over there, it's 10. You buy as much as you can in the cheap place, you sell as much as you can in the expensive place. Then you use your profits to buy weapons, you join drug cartels, the drug cartels supply each other, et cetera. Just what you do on a typical, you know, weekend. <laughs> Zynga must have loved it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, they loved how much money we were making. Um, so anyways, we did this for like six or seven months. And I didn't want to sell the company. We started to get acquisition offers. Uh, but my co-founder just ditched the company, you know, during the, during the offers. So I was extremely burned out and didn't want to be doing this alone anymore. And Zynga made a pretty compelling offer. So I, I actually had two offers. So I played them against each other for a little while. And, just, and eventually sold to Zynga, even though Zynga's offer was one-third of the other person's offer. I sold to Zynga anyways because I wanted to sell for all stock. And uh, I just, I basically, it was my first angel investment, so to speak. Uh, I picked the company I thought would do the best. It was Zynga and it was this company called SGN. I basically interviewed the founders. I got on the phone, I was like, I asked them like 10 questions each, like, how do you view the market? How are you tend to grow? What games do you think will work, blah, blah, blah. And Zynga answered the questions the best. And I was like, this company's going to take the whole market. I know it. Um, at that point, they had 30 employees. So uh, I, I sold to them for all stock. And that was great because they like 100x'd after that. Right? So, you know, if you ever get the chance to sell a company, that's kind of the lesson there is consider it your first investment. And so what were you looking for in that exactly? It was their growth rate. It was they had a plan for the future. What made you believe that they had it right versus the other company that you were getting offered from? What was the difference in those questions being answered? So I, I actually flew out to meet Zynga. And at, the, at that time, they had, you know, like I said, 30 employees. So I was able to meet everybody. And they were all just the, the smartest people I'd ever met. They were, they were incredible. Um, and they, they, had the same, they had the same approach I did. You know, and... You never know like which kind of culture is right. My culture was working 16 hours a day, like going super hard, super aggressive, going all in, spending like, you know, once I, once I make ads profitable, spend infinity dollars on ads, right, until it stops being profitable. That's infinity is the amount of money you should spend on ads if they're profitable, by the way. Um, and Zynga was doing that. They raised money so, so that they could spend a million dollars on ads per day. I think it was like a million dollars a day. It used to be, if you looked on, on Facebook uh, around 2007, 2008, every third ad, actually every other ad was an ad for Zynga Poker. Every, it'd be Zynga Poker, like Gap. Zynga Poker, American Apparel. It was just like every other ad. Um, and that's what I liked about them. Pincus is super aggressive. He's a, he, he was an incredible founder. And I thought, I, I'm going to learn from these people. 
And uh, you know, worst case scenario, I move out to Silicon Valley, work with a bunch of amazing people. Worst case, they like 5X or something and sell and I make a little bit of money. Can you talk about the culture more there? Pincus definitely has a, a brand around him. What's the company like when you first got in? How did it evolve over time? Yeah, I mean that's that's right. He he does have you know he does have a brand. So, so some people think he's a some people think he's a bad manager or he's an asshole. The thing is, when you fire somebody from your company, they're gonna go around and badmouth you. That's just how it works. Because if you get fired, you don't want to make it look like it's your fault. So you tell everybody, oh that company sucks. They're horrible managers, etc. The thing the thing about Zynga is. It was a tough place to work. It was a rocket ship. The first, when I joined, there were 30 employees. The next year, there were 300. The year after that, there were 3,000. And then we IPO'd. So, I mean, you're talking about 10x year-over-year -year growth. It's, it's a pretty hard thing to handle. So sometimes we hired, I would say, I wouldn't say the wrong people. We hired people that weren't a fit for the culture, which meant that they would come in. They would, you know, work the way they normally did. They would get into some conflict with Pincus because they weren't a culture fit. And they would wash out. Um, and that and that happened. You know, they would they they couldn't hold on to the rocket ship. They would fall off. Um, and the people that fell off the rocket ship weren't very happy. You know, because you know now there's a new entry in their resume that says I worked here for six months, right? So I, I think I think there were a lot of people that uh, that ended up coming in, and it wasn't exactly what they expected. And this was definitely, as I said earlier, partly our fault too, because we I, I think midway through the company we decided to start hiring all these traditional gaming people because we realized when we got to 100 employees. None of us know anything about games. <laughs> We're all just these like opportunistic entrepreneurs that saw the Facebook opportunity. We decided to come in like guns blazing and just try to take over with a game, building a gaming company. But we don't really know that much about games. So we thought, oh, well, you know, with our powers combined, if we take our viral and social you know, entrepreneurial DNA, we combine it with the best game makers in the world, we'll be like the ultimate gaming company. But it wasn't actually true because those cultures clashed. When you bring people in that are used to the two or three year release cycle boxed game market, Electronic Arts, Sega, companies like that, they come in and they just can't handle that we were literally iterating daily. We were iterating hourly. On MySpace, they publish new numbers every single hour. So you would see yourself and all of your competitors and the number of new users they acquired that hour. So Pincus would come downstairs every hour on the hour and he'd be like, he'd be like hey, Mafia Wars, why did you only acquire 35,000 users this hour? Because Mob City acquired 42,000 users, or whatever it was, right? So then we would, we would sit down, Pincus would sit down, like looking over your shoulder as you went through and deconstructed their game and figured out if they had some new hack or trick or new viral strategy, and we would copy it, <laughs> you know? Uh, or we would innovate on it, right? And we had our own innovations and our own ideas. In the end, more people copied us than we copied other people, even though we got a bad rap for that. Um, and then when you talk about that, you say that you know, the, it was a very hard hustle culture, that you know, certain things were copied, uh, that the advertising got very, very big. Um, Zynga eventually got slapped by Facebook and the ads uh, strongly decreased. And then um, their valuation soon after. Um, what was that feeling like when Pincus was in the room uh, and that happened? Were you there for that? Uh, I was. I, oh, I, was, I was there when they, shut down, when they shut down the notification channel. I was there when they uh, kind of turned down the spigot on the feed channel. With Facebook, everything was a channel. There, was, there, was, there were feed stories. There were notifications for a while until they got spammed out by app developers and Facebook shut those down. 
Um, there, were, there were various channels on Facebook you could use to reach users. There was like the home page, there were different things. So whenever Facebook shut those channels down, we, we ended up regrouping and focusing more on monetization. Because at that point we had less traffic, it cost more money to get new users. When it costs a lot of money to acquire customers, you have to have a higher lifetime value. That's just how the math works. So uh, we ended up doubling down and focusing more on revenue type stuff whenever that happened. We had, I mean, we had some of them, we, when I was there, we had the best product management infrastructure in the world of any consumer internet company. We had the best in the world. We were hiring people out of hedge funds on Wall Street. We were hiring, pe we were hiring like top MBA grads, like top, like top in their class, paying them a quarter million dollars a year or more to come in and like optimize revenues on Mafia Wars by 3%. Because when you're making a million dollars a day, if you move a number by even 1%, you pay off your salary within like 10 days. So. I mean, we were, we were able to get the best people in the world and be profitable on, those, on, those, on that headcount pretty much immediately. Um, but yeah there, were, yeah, there were a lot of learnings. Sure, and um, post-acquisition, you are an entrepreneur. You were developing prototypes by age 13. Um, what was it like to actually work within a corporation, and why did you stay so long, I guess? Well, I, I mean, I had a job before, before I founded a company. Uh, I worked at I worked at a company called National Instruments in Austin, Texas, uh, doing compiler work. Compilers, FPGAs, embedded systems, was doing some of that stuff for, for about two years after college. Um, and then I founded a company, and then I went back to work for Zynga. The good thing about Zynga, and what you should look for if you, your company ever sells, is, uh, is find a culture that, where, that, that, that sort of enables entrepreneurs to be successful. So uh, that was what I liked about Zynga, is that every group, they, 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 they called them studios or silos. Essentially, studios had autonomy. So I had one meeting a week with my manager. But it felt like a board meeting, really. I would sit down and literally present a deck every week. I would say, hey, here's what my team of 50 people's been doing the last week. We built this, we built this, we raised these numbers, these numbers went down, here's our strategy to get those numbers to go back up, et cetera. So it was, it was, very, it was very low touch. I basically told them what resources I needed. They gave me the resources I needed, and I just, I just ran my studio. And I had, we had our own office. It was actually a separate office that was, had its own door and like, you know, we decorated the walls. It felt like it was a mini startup within Zynga. So it, it, was, it was very palatable for that reason. So that was the first two years I was at Zynga, I was running studios. Um, and then the last year I was there, I was kind of running strategy and I was running some international, I was helping kick off international studios, help kick off China, Japan, and India. Learned uh, conversational Chinese in China in like seven months, which was an achievement, <laughs> it was cool. Um, and then, uh, you know, Japan, India, and then I, that was good. That was a good period to kind of wind down because I was pretty burned out. So kind of chilled out there a little bit and got ready for the next thing. Yeah, and I think towards that, uh, towards the end, and then uh, for a while full time after, you were doing a bunch of investing. Um, there's some great companies already in your portfolio. Um, what was that like? What was the transition like? Did it feel organic? And then once you started making those investments, what did you look for in the investments you made? A quick break from the conversation for some recent startup headlines. Pandora co-founder Tim Westergren has been named as the company's new CEO, replacing current CEO Brian McAndrews. The board also restructured its management team with Mike Herring as president and CFO, Sarah Clemens as COO, and Chris Phillips as chief product officer. Pandora's stock dropped 10% in pre-market trading on Monday. Oracle is seeking up to $9.3 billion from Google for the company's unlicensed use of Java and Android. Oracle sued six years ago when the case went to trial in 2012, but the jury is still split on whether Google's implementation fell under fair use. The new case begins May 9th. An Oracle-hired expert is set to announce new damages, which could change from their current level. 
An alleged hacker used Google search to identify potential vulnerabilities in a New York dam, according to the Wall Street Journal. Hamid Farouzi has been charged after he purportedly used something called the Google dorking process to find info on an unprotected system in 2013. Hamid is reportedly in Iran and could face arrest upon leaving the country. Let's get back to the interview. Um, so I had, I mean, it, it, investing was a pretty natural thing for me. Uh, it was, it, it, it felt good to work with a lot of different founders. It felt good to meet people, uh, chat about their ideas. It was a really natural thing for me because I'd kind of always done that throughout, you know, college and later. If friends of mine had ideas, they'd come to me and they'd say, Roger, you know, what should I do with this? Do you think this is good? How should I approach this or that strategy? And I would go to my friends with the same questions. So for me, it just felt like, it just felt like making new friends. And if I made a new friend that I thought was particularly uh, interesting, I would, I would look, at, look at investing in their company. Um, so it was a pretty natural transition. Um, I ended up making about, in the last five or six years, I made about 50 investments, in, mostly in Bay Area startups, although some are based in LA and New York, just out of, uh, just out of basically just out of a personal fund. So for me, it was, you know, it, I, I didn't have to be making investments, but it, I, I saw it as valuable for my career. For one thing, after I left the gaming space, I knew I wanted to do something else. Gaming was a very temporary thing that sort of worked on Facebook because Facebook was this disruptive distribution platform. And that was a secret that we all knew. We knew that, that distribution on Facebook was way easier than it should have been. We used to get 500,000 users per day for free. They would just find our game and sign up. You can't say that about anything right now. Not mobile, nothing. There's no platform like that in the world. No matter what you're doing, whether it's games or whether it's apps or whether it's something else, you can't get hundreds of thousands of users per day for free. So that was a pretty unique opportunity that we had to capitalize on immediately. There was no waiting, there's no tomorrow, next week, I'll do it later. We had to do it immediately. Um, after I left though, there wasn't really an arbitrage like that. So I, I, I kind of got it back into investing sort of as an excuse to learn about other markets. Because when you meet a founder, they say, hey, here's what I'm working on. I'm making a medical technology thing, or I'm doing an on-demand transportation app, or hey, you can tap this button to get an Airbnb on demand or whatever it is. So you learn about all these different markets. Uh, so that, that, was, that was a great, it was a great excuse for me to go learn about other spaces and see where I wanted to take my consumer talents, where I wanted to take what I'd learned at Zynga, which was we, 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 we knew how to drive customer behavior. We understood gamification. We understood, um, we understood viral growth. We understood a lot of things better than almost anybody else. And those were skills that were transferable. So to your, to your second question, what, what, what I look for in investments, um, I look for a couple of things in no particular order. So one, to reference Peter Thiel again, Peter Thiel says that timing is greater than markets. Uh, sorry, uh, timing is greater than market, is greater than team, is greater than product. So that basically means is when you're starting a company, you gotta make sure that the timing is right. Timing implies a few things. It implies, am I leveraging some disruptive technology? If an investor asks me, why now? Why, why, why is now the right time to start this business? You've got to have a damn good answer. Um, second, uh, you know, second is uh, you know, market. Are you, in a, are, are, are you in the right market? Is it actually a big market? Or did you do some top-down calculation and say, oh, you know, I'm in the legal market, and legal is you know, $200 billion. OK, maybe, maybe legal is $200 billion, but you're not going to get all the revenue that every law firm in the world will make. Maybe you have some app that lawyers use to you know, look up case files. Well, how much do lawyers spend on software as a service? That's the market that you're in. And you're in a subset of that market because you're in the market that they spend on, you know, legal research. So it's legal research, software as a service for lawyers. So suddenly, like, it's actually a smaller market, right? So understanding what your market actually is is, is essential. 
um, team, you know, the first person on the team is you. So the first question to ask as a founder is, should I be starting a company? Should I be on the team? Should there be a team, right? And you know, you have to you have to look at your background. You have to understand what makes a good founder to to answer that question. Um, and then and then finally, product. Do you have a good idea within that market and you know with that team? Do you actually have a good idea? And a lot of products, you know, they seem like good ideas, but they don't solve a real problem. I'd say that's the biggest shortcoming of most products is that their solutions looking for a problem. You know, it's uh, you know it's a founder that said, oh, I think it'd be cool to build this, and nobody really wants it. So you end up raising money, and you burn a year, to, you burn a year, a year and a half before you realize that nobody wants to use your product. Then you know sometimes it's too late to pivot. So uh, reaching product market fit is important, but but as I said, kind of the other things are more important. So I think those are a couple of things I look for. Um, an another way to frame it is, I like I like founders that have uh, you know that have very simple ideas in huge markets that are incredibly difficult to build. I think those are three really important qualifications. So take Uber as an example. Uber is simple. Push a button, get a car. What could be simpler? It's in a huge market. It's transportation. Transportation's hundreds of billions. Everybody needs to get around, right? Um, and it's very hard to do. And the hardest thing about Uber, maybe the only hard thing about Uber, is building the driver network. That's hard, right? So when driverless cars come out, Everybody will have their own driver network, so Uber's dead. So if any of you have Uber stock, I would sell it immediately. Because <laughs> I, uh, I think that company might, I think the common for Uber might go to zero in the next five to 10 years. I think the later stage investors might make a little money, but if you're an employee, you're a founder, you're probably screwed. Um, I, I don't have high hopes for that. Um, but, but anyways, it was a good idea when they had it. Uh, so, so anyways, yeah, a, a, again, simple idea, big market, very, very hard to build. And very hard to build gets back to defensibility. So one thing you want to ask yourself, and I ask every founder this um, when, I'm, when, they're, when they're pitching me, is what are the three hardest things you have to do to succeed? So you look at, uh, you know, I was talking to this company called Soundbox the other day. They're in the recent YC class. They make, they make speakers, right? Um, they, make, they, they make speakers that are, that are louder than other speakers, and the battery life lasts longer than other speakers. So what are the hardest things they have to do? Well, one, number one is probably brand. Because if you're trying to sell a hardware product, you have to build a brand around it, just like GoPro has done or Red Bull has done. People like jump out of planes like with, with you know, crazy clown suits on and they like take a GoPro video. People see that on YouTube and they wanna buy a GoPro. Or you see some guy skiing or you see some, some girl like hang gliding or whatever and you're like, oh, that looks really cool. I wanna, I wanna buy that product. So branding and marketing is the hardest thing. If they don't do anything else and they achieve that, they win. The next hardest thing is hardware. I mean, their, their speakers have to be significantly better than other speakers, right? Uh, otherwise, it's, it's not, it might not be that interesting of a business, et cetera. So when you look at different companies, you'll get a feel for what are the hardest things they have to do. And then you ask the question, why are you the right team to do these things? So sometimes you, you look at what are the three hardest things you have to do to succeed, and then you look at the founding team, and there's no match. Another, way to, another thing to call that is founder, founder market fit or founder product fit. So you have product market fit, then you sort of have founder market fit, right? A lot of times there just isn't founder market fit. It's somebody trying to start a company because they saw it on TechCrunch, because they saw it on Hacker News, because they think it's cool, not because they're actually a fit to do it. So that's, that's, that's something I look for. Thanks for the details. Uh, we're going to jump into um, a little bit about your current investments. Uh, I know you made um, some investments this week even. I kind of want to ask you about what you're still doing, investing, um, and then to get a bit of a picture for some of the people here, 
probably you know pre-money most of these folks um, or maybe going through their seed round uh, what the environment for them looks like what they should be doing to adapt their pitches these days yeah so so uh, last week I made four investments in startups um, so uh, so invested in a couple of Y Combinator startups uh, one that was from a friend of mine um, and you know I looked for a lot of the same things that I just mentioned um, you know, a couple of these companies, uh, most of these companies had some really defensible, really interesting technology they're, 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 they're using. And again, to, to quote Peter Thiel for a third time, um, one of the biggest things I look at is companies that can become monopolies. So this is actually what they tell you when you're in Y Combinator is they, they kind of tell you like, how can your company become a monopoly? And if you can't become a monopoly, it's not very interesting. Because then what happens is you're just going to be on this, you're selling, that means what you're selling is a commodity. A commodity is the opposite of a monopoly. So you're selling something that a lot of other people can provide. It's a fairly easy service to provide. Now you're stuck in this loop where your salespeople are on the phone and they're like, no, really, we're better than person A, B, and C. Like you kind of have to really convince people when you're trying to sell, and that's really difficult to do. So the, 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 the thing in common that these companies have is there are, there are elements of the company that allow them to be monopolies. Um, so one, for example, is a company called Onflux, uh, which is a competitor to Athos, which makes smart athletic clothing. Um, so the concept behind Athos is you wear this workout, this, these, this workout clothing that has motion capture sensors in it, and your phone detects motion capture while you're doing your workout, and it learns over time uh, when, when, you, when you reach muscle exhaustion doing certain activities. So they're, 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 they're getting uh, data across you know, tens of thousands of users, thousands of samples per month of data, and they're able to use that to eventually build an artificial intelligence tr personal trainer that everybody will be able to have. After your workout, you can go look at a video of it, and you'll see your 3D avatar on the screen, like doing military presses, you know, or bench presses, or doing pull-ups or push-ups or whatever it is, right? Um, so I, I, I think that's pretty interesting. They already have a lot of athletes using it. Um, and if, 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 if they can get all of this data in one place and use it to make a personal trainer better, they'll develop a monopoly. They'll have a defensible position that nobody can compete with. So that's one example. Um, Hearing about some of the trends for especially A rounds and pre-A rounds. Yeah, so you guys have probably heard that there's, there's a slowdown happening in tech, right? I mean, we go through, we go through cycles. Uh, you know, there was kind of a bubble, and now we're in what people are calling a slowdown. Ultimately, banks, uh, due to various economic conditions, I won't speak to because I'm not the best person, banks have, been base, banks have been marking down later stage company valuations. And, I mean, put yourself in an investor's shoes. Well, investors... If they're investing in an early stage company, they want that early stage company to eventually become a later stage company. So if it looks like later stage companies are becoming less valuable, well, their expected value calculation they're doing when they're looking at your company is gonna produce a lower number, right? So investors are, uh, particularly on the, on the seed side, I think investment money is starting to dry up a little bit. The reason I would say seed versus later stage is seed investments come from angel investors. Angel investors invest money for fun, and they don't run a fund. Like, I can go out next week and I can write a 50K check to a founder, or I can put that 50K in a savings account, or I can go invest it in the stock market, or I can put it into a real estate fund. I can put it to work where I'd like. Um, so angels are gonna turn on a dime. If they read an article on TechCrunch that there's a slowdown, like, and they meet you next week, they won't invest. On the other hand, later stage funds, you know, the Andreessen's of the world, Sequoia, Benchmark, Excel, these guys have already raised funds in excess of $500 million, $500 million, a billion dollar funds. 
they have to spend that money on technology companies. They can't stop spending money on technology companies just because people think there's a slowdown. So I don't think later stage will see as much of a slowdown. What I would say will happen with later stage is I would say it's going to separate the wheat from the chaff to a degree. So you're going to see companies that don't have, don't have strong financials. Maybe they're, you know, they have 10 million users but no revenue. You're going to see those companies have a lot more trouble raising money. You're going to, I think you're going, to see, you're going to see the money concentrated on companies with stronger financials. But remember that these investors have the same amount of money to, to invest. And there are the same number of later stage investors. So there's going to be more competition for the companies, hopefully like Gigster, that have strong financial fundamentals. So I, I think that when we go out to raise our Series B, um, we could see a lot of competition for it. Because we'll have better fundamentals than almost anyone else. We're not some social photo sharing app. We make five figures from every customer we have. So, you know, there's real cash flow coming into the company, right? So I think there could be competition. We could see our valuation actually balloon above what it would have been before the slowdown, so to speak. You want to throw a question down? So <clears throat> what if you're a company similar to Gigster where you see high revenue growth on every customer in a repeatable fashion, but you're at the A, if you're, but you're at the a round? And you require financial you require financial foundations to prove that revenue assumption. How, uh, do you, how do you how do you approach investors? That's a tough place to be if you're at the A round and you still need to prove your revenue model. Investors are getting to a point where they're 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 able to invest in later and later stage opportunities at the same at the same financing stage. So it used to be that companies in Y Combinator like, didn't have any revenue. Now you go to YC Demo Day and half the companies are at a million dollar run rate. Um, it used to be a million dollar, two million dollar run rate was a Series A. Now that's a seed round. That's an average size seed round. So if you're at a place where you're trying to raise an A round and you're still kind of having trouble or you're not exactly there on the revenue side, uh, you might need to go back to the drawing board a little bit and kind of get, get to that traction level before you're able to have, to, to have, to have much interest. Um, the, 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 there are different numbers you have to hit to achieve a, 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 to achieve a strong Series A, depending on what market you're in. So for gaming, for example, investors won't look at a gaming app uh, for even a seed round unless it has a million users. Um, so if you have 10,000 users, like you can't even go raise money. It's time to like you know, break the piggy bank, um, go ask your parents for money or whatever, and, you know, keep going till you can somehow get to a million users. Um, that, this is the problem with software, if you have a software company, is software has low cost basis. So there's always going to be another founder like you who is able for free to get to a higher level of traction. That's the issue. It's basically supply and demand. Demand is constant, but supply is actually around the A, a stage. There's a lot of strong supply that has good traction. Yeah, you want to throw a question down? We're going to jump into questions as soon as we get through Gigsters, uh, what the company actually does. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time on Q&A, so just going to ask you to hold that for a second. I really only have two questions about Gigster. We know a little bit about it. I'll have you introduce it first, uh, and then I'll jump into those questions. What is Gigster all about? So Gigster, Gigster does software development on demand is a simple way to say it. You, you come to our site, push a button, get a quote from a sales engineer within minutes, and uh, we'll build any software for you. It's great for non-technical folks, or if you're a company that doesn't have a, a large technical team yet. Just like I said about Uber earlier, push a button, get a car. Well, with Gigster, you push a button and you get software. We'll give you a project manager. We'll give you developers, designers, whatever you need. 
all you do is uh, we sync up with you once a week. And, you know, you can, you can weigh in on our progress, and we give you software. It's intended to be the simplest possible way to get software built for your business. So we sell to a lot of enterprises. Uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of innovation groups within companies. Uh, you know, e even people, you know, people like Nike, you know, people like Sony, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, pretty much every, every Fortune 500 company or brand has an innovation group. They have an IT department. And they have trouble hiring engineers, just like you guys. Engineers don't want to work for Bank of America, right? They want to go build some sexy iOS app or something, right? So these companies actually have a lot of trouble, and they spend a lot on outsourcing. And they, and they do it for various reasons. Sometimes, uh, for example, I heard a story where IBM laid off 50,000 people, and they hired them all back as contractors for 2x their hourly rate. <laughs> so it sounds stupid to you, but you're not IBM's CFO. Maybe they wanted to move money from one bucket to another. It's two different lines in their P&L. There's one line for headcount. There's one line for you know, discretionary budget expenditure, right? So if you pay people hourly as consultants, that's discretionary expense or whatever. That's a different line. So you can kind of play some accounting tricks if you, you, know, if you hire people uh, as consultants, right? So we've seen, we've seen people hire us for different reasons. Sometimes it's because they like, they like to use consultants or contractors more than, more than hiring hourly work. But pretty often it's because, you know, there's like, there's like a director of marketing. This is a real example. There's a director of marketing at, you know, Square um, who wants to, wants to build a demo. They went to ask their development team. Their development team said, screw you. We're busy on our roadmap. Go find some other way to do it. So they came to Gigster, pushed a button. They're like, hey, I need this. We're like, great. That'll be $11,000. Click here to pay. They paid. They got it like four weeks later. Um, so it's, 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 pretty much, uh, it's pretty much the easiest way to get custom software built for your business. That's, that's the aim. Sweet. So the first thing I wanted to ask is we had you know, Guy Kawasaki at the conference recently. He's looking to build a uh, dog food delivery app, probably introducing some drones into that so that actually gets you quicker. Uh, let's say I come to Gigster and I want to build the dog food delivery app. What happens? So, uh, so first of all, you'd get to the site. You'd, you'd like click to chat with a sales engineer. Call them sales engineers because they have engineering or product or their founder by background. And then you know, they say, hey, please describe your project or, 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 up, or attach a spec. Um, this is a chat interface. So you can say, hey, I want to build a dog food delivery app. And what they'll do is they start to fill in the blanks. So they'll say, that's great. Is this for iOS or Android? Do you need an app for the delivery agents or not? Um, do you have an API for these drones, or do you want us to build it for you? Uh, do you how, what do you want the screens to look like? Should there be a screen you open up that shows different dog food options? You choose one, you click buy. If your credit card isn't on file, it asks you for the number. Then the next screen is a map, and you can see when it's coming to you, and there's a time estimate. Does that sound right? You say yes or no. We go back and forth till we iterate down to what you want. And unbeknownst to you, while you're talking, right next to the window, they have a calculator, and they're plugging in features uh, that you're asking for. So they're plugging in map view, payments, landing page, settings. Um, you know, selector, right? Credit, credit card box, whatever, right? Um, and then as soon as you're done talking, often they have a price. And they say, great, that'll be $17,000, guaranteed. All, it's all guaranteed fixed price with us. It's not hourly. So you're like, what? How'd you get that so fast? Uh, you say guaranteed. What does that mean when you get, like, scope creep or when um, me as a user wants to add in not just dog food but cat food too? feel like I'm on a sales call right now. <laughs> I 
Actually, uh, this over here is Catherine, one of our one of our sales engineers at Kickstarter. We can all say hello to Catherine later. <laughs> not, to, not to call her out too much. So if, 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 you, if you have a project idea, you can talk to Catherine afterwards. She would love to meet you. Um, so we get this question all the time. So we, we budget in. I mean, the idea with Gigster is you're never going to know 100% what you need, especially in a three-month project. Your needs will change. So we just want you to come to us if you're 80% sure of what you want, and 20% of it might change later. So we actually budget in some money to change direction uh, mid, mid, midstream. Um, you can also like horse trade features. So if midway through we haven't started some feature yet and you're like, oh, don't, don't, don't build this map view, just have like a progress bar for when it's gonna get to me instead. You, we'll, 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 we'll do that for you, that's, that's not a problem. So you know, we're, we're happy to be very flexible. We honestly don't have, I, I think it's a great question because I would intuitively have thought, wow, this process is too brittle, this isn't gonna work. Fixed price, how do you do that? Um, I, I think it does seem like an issue, but we never have that issue with clients. We're able to be flexible enough. Um, if, if you want some addition that's totally out of scope, like you're like, oh, you, you're building me an iOS app, why don't you throw an Android one in too? Well, obviously that's you know, gonna be a little more work than we can just throw in for free. So we would say, oh, that'll be an extra $5,000. If you approve, it gets added to your bill. And uh, we don't charge up front either. You pay over like eight milestones typically. So you're just paying a little bit at a time and you can cut out whenever you want. Um, something that we all did during this before this interview was to actually play with it and to see how I might build something ahead of time. So definitely encourage you guys to check it out. Um, it is almost too easy to spend 20 grand on something. Um, We've so had people drop 20 grand in like <laughs> 30 minutes. Nice. Actually, I, th I think our office manager closed a $10,000 project in 15 minutes one time. It's 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 easy to sell on the platform and it's easy to buy. <laughs> it's scary. You're monetizing like mafia wars. This is scary stuff. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I want to do is ask about scale. But before I do, I want to make sure you guys get a chance to get some questions ready. You've heard him talk about investing, about scaling, about building product. Uh, now is a good time to get those questions in mind. He can answer some of these. And if you have a product idea, then we can throw it over to the sales manager on site too. Um, the last thing I want to ask about how you're scaling this. This is typically a, a very consultant-heavy industry, uh, very um, heavy in terms of having a product manager, in terms of managing hours. Um, I've done development too, and the projects that I've had either come up half-mangled or over budget. It's it's a total beast. Um, so I'm not wondering just what you're doing to scale on the uh, HR side. How you're actually getting these people who could be working for Google instead? But what you're doing on the technical side? You should talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll first answer the question on the demand side because I'm sure if you guys have B2B businesses, you might be wondering how do you, you know, how do you scale a B2B business quickly? Um, well, this is my first B2B company. Before this, everything I was doing was in consumer, and it's funny because I'm not the most extroverted person. Um, and actually, doing doing uh, doing doing consumer product is way better if you're introverted. So you don't have to talk to anybody. They just come to your website, play with it you know, pay, they're done, right? Um, if, you, if, if, you're doing, if, if you're doing a B2B company, you have to get on the phone with clients. You have to sell, you have to pitch, you have to do meetings, you have to do partnerships. It's, it's a much different process. Um, and it doesn't scale like a consumer company either. We're not gonna grow virally with customers that are spending like $20,000 each. It's not gonna work like Zynga. So, uh, so pr pr pretty early on we realized that we had to find some other techniques. And we have, a, we have a few ideas that are kind of what I would put in the silver bullet category of interesting ideas that might get us a lot of, a lot of customers. But a lot of, B2B a lot of B2B business, it's not silver bullet. It's just the standard stuff. Email marketing, SEO, SEM, 
branding, going to live events like this, uh, you know, handing out business cards, stuff like that. It's just a lot of beating the pavement. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of traditional tactics, outbound sales. Um, you've got to get really, really good at all those things. And the multiplier that you're going to see on all of your, uh, all of your demand generation activity is how good is your actual product? You might have heard that enterprise sales is a pain in the ass. Well, it's only a pain in the ass if your product sucks. If you're selling something that's cool, enterprise sales is actually fun because you get to meet interesting people from brands you've known and loved and respected your whole life. Uh, we just, like Gatorade, just we, just, we met Gatorade t this morning and they're like, wow, we want to build an app with you. And that's cool, I, I drink Gatorade, you know? <laughs> so uh, I'd love to build an app for Gatorade, you know? And, and it was like, after one meeting, they were just like, boom, we're in, let's do it. Um, that's cool, right? So first, make sure you're doing something cool, which I'm sure you're all aiming to do. Um, and, and then, you know, and then I, I would say after that, the other issue we've had, before I get to your other questions, uh, is we're in more of a, we're in what looks like more of a commodity space. So some of you guys might be in something that could be considered as a commodity space. We do development services. Well, we are in good company. There's probably a quarter million development shops in the world that all, all look the same. They have a landing page that says, hey, look at our clients. We have top quality developers. Click here to work with us. That's what our web page looks like, and so does everybody else. So how do we actually stand out? Well, branding is very important. So like I said earlier, when you're looking at what, what's the hardest thing you have to do to succeed, for us, it's branding. Branding's like number one at the top of the list. So I spend a lot of time thinking about who we are and how are we different. You know, so we're different in a couple ways. We have a 1% accept rate for talent, so we're like very picky. We have, uh, you know, we have a really cool user experience. Just push a button to get software. Like we try to streamline it. I try to make it like a consumer product, even though it's B2B. So I kind of bring that DNA, which is a little unique for a B2B company. And then finally, we have this intelligent AI-empowered platform that makes the projects more efficient over time. So that kind of leads me to your questions. So first one was, uh, how are we scaling? How are we getting the talent? Is yeah. that it? And then how do we, how do we make scale it back in technology? Okay. So, uh, so it's interesting. I mean, we, so we have some of the best engineers in the world on Gigster. You might ask, how did we hire them? Well, we didn't hire them, right? Because they're freelancers. So it's, it's a lot easier if you email like some senior backend engineer at Amazon and you're like, hey, do you want to be on my platform? That's a lot easier than if you say, hey, do you want to quit your job at Amazon and come work for me? So freelancing is, it's a, little, it's a little different. And the thing is, the best people in the world actually want to freelance. Because if you're a full-time developer at a company like Google, well, I'm sure you guys know Google hires defensively, which is an insult to good engineers because they, they hire you so that Facebook can't have you. They have, not, they have no use for you. They put you on the bench doing busy work. And like, you didn't, you didn't grow up as a little girl or boy dreaming to work on like the settings page of Gmail. Okay, like nobody did, but somebody has to do that. There's probably, there's probably 10 people that work on the settings page at Gmail. So what do you do for those 10 people? Well, you go home and you dream bigger dreams. You make an iOS app for fun. You, you know, from soup to nuts, you do the whole thing. That's what you can do as a developer on Gigster, and you get paid. So we take the people that are doing side projects anyways, which are the best engineers in the world, engineers that can't stop engineering when they go home because they love it so much. We take those people and they find a place on Gigster and they supplement their income. Some of them double or triple their income by doing Gigster on the side on weekends and evenings and stuff like that. And then it's founders like you guys who maybe uh, run out of financing and you want to be a product manager or a developer on the side to kind of keep the startup afloat. 
But we see a ton of people like that, um, and we're in Silicon Valley, so there's there's a huge supply of founders that you know wouldn't mind an extra 10k a month, uh, 20k a month, kind of flowing in so that they can keep operations going. Um, so that's that's kind of that's kind of where we find where you find talent. We found we found a place there. People like us. We built a good employment brand. Um, in terms of how we scale it, so. One of the core innovations, I didn't want to start a development shop. I'm not interested in like curating talent and like making it available on demand. Those are all just stupid buzzwords that, uh, you know, really there's a lot of startups that do that kind of thing, right? C you know, curate was like the word back in 2013. Now it's on demand. I don't know what's next. But um, anyways, the reason I found this interesting is because there's a lot of repetitive work. So the, the general space we're in is what I would call knowledge work automation. That, and, th and that's a $7 trillion market, right? If you look at the amount that American companies spend on knowledge work, it's, it's a lot, whether it's consultants or people that you hire in-house. Knowledge work would be, you know, maybe the opposite of blue-collar work, work that you do with your mind instead of your hands. So where you produce some work product that could be digital, like a lawyer, a tax advisor, an accountant, a, you know, developer, a management consultant, a designer, right? These are all knowledge workers. So imagine, imagine if you could push a button and hire a lawyer, push a button to sue somebody. Push a button to do your taxes. Push a button to get financial planning advice. Push a button to hire a consultant to tell you how to run your SEO or SEM. That's what we find interesting. So we take fields of knowledge work. Right now it's software development. We take fields of knowledge work that have a lot of repetitive activity. We extract digital signals from that repetitive activity. We run machine learning algorithms on those digital signals. And we automate the work so that the humans that are doing the work don't have to do the same thing over and over again. So our aim is to get more efficient over time by, audit, by, by augmenting these knowledge workers until no one can compete, until we're able to do work faster, cheaper, at higher quality, more reliably and consistently than anybody else. Eventually, you'll be able to come to Gigster, push a button, and build a complex iOS app for like $3,000 that'll work every time. And we'll guarantee the timeline, we'll guarantee the quality, and we'll guarantee the price. Our competitors will just have to give up at that point. There's no way to compete with that. Um, we're not there yet. It'll be a couple of years, but we're getting there quickly. And we're, and we're the best position because we have this philosophy. You look at most people in the agency space, essentially what we're doing is we're automating anything that could be an agency, right? Development shop is an agency. A, a law firm is a glorified agency. Tax advisors work for agencies. We're taking agencies and we're making them available at the push of a button in an automated fashion, right? So you look at, you look at this type of agency work and a lot of it's actually automatable. Uh, and so you've just closed a $10 million round with Anderson uh, Horowitz leading. Um, is that the pitch, automating agency work? Uh, it's more, I think what we said is we want to be the world's engineering department. Uh, so uh, we want to do all the engineering in the world because a lot of it's pretty repetitive. Um, at, for, for, for the engineers in this room, uh, you, 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 you probably can't count on two hands how many times you've had to integrate login or auth into an app. This kind of thing is a royal pain in the ass, right? I used, I've been an engineer, been coding since I was eight. I can't tell you how many times I've like started an app from scratch and I've had to build login and build settings and build all this crap. I just want to talk to a computer in English and have code come out, right? So that's that that's kind of that's the broad that's the broader vision, and we built kind of a business around that. Cool. We're gonna jump to questions, and we're gonna hand over to John first. 